Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. In this episode, Benny and I are chatting with Richard Simcott, an incredible hyperpolyglot and the co-founder of the Polyglot Conference. In this interview, we discuss the secrets to working on more than one language at a time, how to maintain languages with anchor languages, reactivating, improving, and learning new languages, finding motivation to learn languages through human connection, and Richard's criteria for choosing a language tutor. If you're enjoying this podcast, please let us know. You can leave us a review at languagehacking.com slash review. We love hearing from you and your reviews help others find us. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 35. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Today, we have a guest that I've been looking forward to interviewing for quite a while. It is Richard Simcott. Richard is like the daddy of the polyglot community. That's the way I see him, because we all look up to him. We all respect him. He has uh, headed the polyglot conference for many, many years, and he's been among the first videos that people would have come across when they search for polyglot. And he's a very, very impressive polyglot. But as well as that, um, I think he's got just a, a lovely personality and uh, he is, um, he's got a unique language learning story that I want to share with everybody t- today and uh, hear how that's evolved over the years. So thanks so much for joining us today, Richard. Well, thank you very much, Benny. It's really always a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm so grateful for you to have you know, having me on the, on the show today. So thank you. So I, I want to kick things off by, by like really hearing the, your intro to uh, how you got into languages. It's a, it's a very interesting story that you were managing the phone calls and kind of interpreting that. Like, like how did your language learning story really get kicked off as an adult? As an adult, so um, I'd say that I, I went to university and studied languages at university. So um, I, I decided to study as many as I possibly could on my degree course. So I looked up all of the degree courses that allowed me to do a minimum of three languages. And uh, there were only five universities that I found that would let me do that. So I applied to four of them and um, I got into them. So I had my, my sort of pick of the of the places really and when I went around to visit them and I spoke to the different departments I really really liked the philosophy and just the relaxed engagement that I felt with with Hull and in Hull I've never even thought of going to Hull it was actually one of my uh, sort of backup choices originally but when I went to the campus I just fell in love with the campus with the teachers that they were all really supportive and really welcoming. And they said, you know, you can do your degree, but also if you want to sit in on other, other courses or you want to do this, or you want to do that. At that time, it was just so, so open. So in the end, I was, I was doing my degree in French, Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese. And then I did, um, the, the, I sat in on the Scandinavian studies degree of Swedish and old Icelandic and just loved it so much. And, studied languages outside with the friends tandem partnering all that kind of stuff and just carried on from there really and it's just growing and growing and growing into this monster (laughs) 
So I know that Benny and my philosophy tends to focus more on one language at a time. And like, we don't really move into, we don't move to the next language until we feel confident in the language that we have been studying. But it sounds like you are quite the master at managing multiple languages. So what are your secrets? (laughs) I don't know if there are any secrets to it. I think that it's more about having got into that discipline of starting uh, a few new languages at university. um, And and just getting used to the fact that I had to to structure my day in a way that I would I would do a certain language at a certain time and practice it and sort of I got into that rhythm really. And the thing that I have learned is that it's very difficult to learn two similar languages at the same time. But it's a lot easier to to say start two or more projects where you have one language that's entirely new and another language that's similar to the ones you've already studied. In fact, it can be an advantage to do that because you get this rush of, you can you can communicate quite quickly. So for example, I started learning, uh, I think it was Indonesian and uh, Norwegian at the same time. Um, it could have been another combination, but it was something like that where a language where I'd not touched the group and then the other language where I, I already spoke Swedish. And, I was going to go to Norway on a trip to Svalbard in the very north in the Arctic Circle. And I had something very concrete that I wanted to do. And I had my Teach Yourself book and I went through the entire book. And I could basically read it almost like a novel because Swedish is so close to Norwegian. I w- and then I had my lessons on italki and I was speaking to my italki teacher uh, on, a, on a weekly basis and just going over each um, chapter as I went through it. And I was making sort of progress in leaps and bounds because of this background in Scandinavian languages and other Germanic languages. And the the sort of the frustrations that you have with the second language that is a bit further away and you need a bit more time to sort of really internalize and to learn so much vocabulary that's completely new and find hooks and memory techniques to remember the words and to get used to the way the grammar works a bit differently. You don't really have that with a language from a similar uh, language family. And when you feel confident in the first language, it's definitely a lot more doable to to do the other one as well. So that's the kind of way I would do it nowadays, where I'd sort of do similar and very different. So you, you tend to do maybe two languages at the same time, or can you expand on that? And like, how, how do you work that in with maintaining, because, um, you know, you've already got a lot of languages to work on at the same time as learning new ones? Yeah, um, it's a good question. And with the maintaining languages, what I find is I have anchor languages in each family. So their languages in a certain language family that are particularly strong. And the other ones, um, depending on what I've done with them, would, would be more or less anchors. So they may go down to a point where I don't feel so confident speaking uh, to a high level or uh, even at all, potentially. Um, whereas the, the strong anchor languages always remain. And that, that I find what happens is with some of the anchor languages, um, they help me maintain this base level in the other languages. So when I speak Spanish, I'm constantly thinking of the Catalan way of saying things, or, or I, I think I'm, I'm always reminded of Catalan words and how it's different now. It's the same because the way I've built up my memory of the, the vocabulary is based off the original language that I studied to a high level. So whenever I do it, I revisit these memory sort of stories and tricks that I sort of did to get my uh, these words in my head. And, and also they trigger emotions and trigger 
you know, sort of stories from my own life where I've, I've actually been in situations where I needed to use the languages. And so it, it triggers all of these again. And, and so I find that it's, it's quite easy to retain them. The, the exception for me is where I have languages that I've just studied for a project for a few months, and then I didn't really use them very much. And then there aren't the same memories and triggers that have been in my mind long term to just retain even even sometimes the rudimentary elements of the language to put it together to to speak it effectively as an active language. I may still have passive understanding, but I'd have to go back to it again to to revisit it and to, to, to really pick it up again. And yes, I can expand on more languages. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll 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 now tend to do projects where I'll look into languages. And you, as you quite rightly said, when you studied a number of languages and you speak a number of languages to a higher level, um, you can't possibly use them all, all the time. And so I'm, I'm very choosy as to what I do and to the level I study a, lang a new language. So I, I wouldn't, for example, aim for these highfalutin C2 type levels or even a B2 or sometimes even a B1 level I wouldn't go for. I would be sticking around this A1 a2 if it's something I'm just going on a short trip or um, mostly an A1 level is more than sufficient for for holiday conversations. I mean, even an A1.1, which isn't even a full A1, is enough for a holiday. So I think sometimes we do devalue those levels. And having been through the process of studying Turkish and actually doing the A1 exam and the A2 exam and the B1 exam, um, in that language, I really got a full appreciation as to what's involved at each of those levels. And even the points in between, so the sort of, you know, the halfway point of the A1 course, actually, I could say a fair bit. And if I wanted to go and hold into Turkey at that point, I could have got, I really could have got by with, with a bit of Turkish that I'd studied at that point. And I find that the more and more I do of this, the, the easier it, it becomes to to sort of make more and more connections and to, and to keep that uh, sort of linguistic core going and sort of burning. And I almost feel a need to keep doing that to reignite the sort of the fires of, of those stories and memories in my head. I'm curious to know what goes into the decision-making process for you when you're deciding whether to perhaps reactivate a language or learn a new language or even improve a currently active language. So how do you decide what you're going to focus on? Um, I think I probably have a, a, a similar sort of thing in the beginning. Many people feel that just the sort of this longing desire, um, this wish that I, I could actually do more with a language that I already speak. And I've definitely had that with Albanian, Turkish and Greek, where I can definitely get by in those three languages and I can communicate my ideas quite effectively um, and I can understand them fairly well, some better than others in different areas, of course. But I've, I always have that want, that desire to actually improve all three of those because you know, being based in the Balkans, they're quite big languages. Um, you hear them all the time. I come across them very frequently. And and so I do want to, um, I do feel that need. And sometimes it's based just off that, that pure raw emotion of I want to do it. Other times, like revisiting a language, um, it can be simply, I did this with at the start of the, the COVID crisis with Indonesian. I did Indonesian as a project years ago. And I just was sitting at 
at home and thought, you know, I'm going to just do some italki lessons in a few of the languages I've done before and dabble in a few new ones, play with a few trial lessons, that kind of thing. And I just found this um, teacher for Indonesian and the teacher was so nice <laughs> and I just really enjoyed the class. And so I've carried on doing these Indonesian lessons just once a week and brought my Indo- and revived my Indonesian, not saying it's any good. It's not, it's not good. It's, it's an okay level to get by as a tourist and to, to ch- talk generally about what I do in life and that kind of stuff. But it's, it's a lot of fun to do. And, and that was a complete accident, but it was because of that personal connection and that, that person I met through Italki, the teacher was just super, super nice and just made me want to be able to speak it again. I don't know. It's, it's very strange, but it's, it it is quite personal. There are times where I, I do think, okay, there is an actual need as well. Um, more often than not nowadays, I've, I'm sort of a bit further down in my career. I, I don't particularly need to speak any other languages at these very high two C2 levels or whatever. I, I've already been there, done that, got the T-shirt and sort of started my work and, and, and you know, been working for years using my languages in that way um, in a professional context. So there aren't really languages where I need to do that so much. Um, I have had cause a couple of times to sort of revitalize my Italian or my Portuguese uh, from university because when I finished university, I did find that it was more French and Spanish from my degree and then my German that would be more called on. And then after that would be Swedish and Dutch. Um, Whereas my Italian and my Portuguese actually weren't called upon as as often um, in, in, in my jobs. But that has changed and I've had friends that have moved to where I live and particularly Italian family came and lived uh, in Skopje uh, for four or five years and we were hanging out all the time speaking only Italian and those kinds of things also help to sort of make me want to get back to a language when I meet people and it's definitely the human contact the human connection yeah the human connection and the potential for travel and uh, people in your community are uh, can be a huge motivator definitely have been for me um, but a part of your story that obviously um, takes that in a different direction is as you got online a lot. So as you started to upload YouTube videos and started to get into the polyglot community. So I'm very interested to hear your perspective on how that story happened. Like, how did you first decide to upload videos and why did you decide to make a polyglot conference? Yeah, really good. That's, <laughs> it's an interesting story because people could sort of, they do it for very different reasons, I guess, nowadays than when it, when it first started. So as you quite rightly said in the beginning, Benny, um, when I uploaded my very first uh, polyglot speaking 16 languages video, I just selected 16 of the languages I'd studied at that point um, at different levels. I didn't script it. I just wrote down the languages that I wanted to go through that wouldn't confuse me <laughs> as I went through. So, so the, the path of least resistance, I guess, is probably how you'd put it. And believe it or not, actually, that was a second take. The first take, I had a technical issue. And that was my second take of the video, the very first video. And I just went through and just sort of read off a list, the languages, knowing which one of those going back. So I didn't go back to the same language twice or something stupid, you know. I wanted to make sure it had some sort of semblance of he's thought this through a little bit. Um, (laughs) So I I basically did that. And the reason I did it was... um, actually 
there are multiple reasons. The first was that um, I wanted to reach out to other people in the community. We'd already started communicating a bit on um, a forum called that had to speak any language, which you were part of. And we, we were doing that, which was great, but it was sort of, I, I'd seen Luca's video and I'd seen Stu J's video. And I think they were the only two videos out there at that point uh, that were polyglot videos. And then I was the third. And so I put it out to basically connect to people like Luca and Stu J and, and other people as well. The other reason I, I decided to do it was also because I grew up loving languages so much that it was it was kind of like a, a freakish thing to do and not the norm. It was very strange. And I was the only person um, who, who was doing it. I didn't know anyone else who did it. Even when I went through my degree, the people who even did my degree weren't as into all languages as I was. They were into the languages they were doing, but they weren't into all languages. And, and I was expecting them to be basically different versions of me. I had one friend who was in the, in the year below me at university who was as into languages as I was. And um, we connected and we became very, very good friends because of that. Now, when I, when I uploaded it, my hope was to be an example, I guess, to anybody out there in the middle of nowhere in the US or in the middle of nowhere in Australia or the UK, any of these predominantly, it could even be France or Germany, wherever, where there's a predominant language that's spoken. It's, it's mostly monolingual and people are expected to conform to the majority language. And that's the kind of the case in, in, in the UK, for sure, in the US, pretty much as well in many states. Um, and in many areas and also in, in, in other countries as well, it's, it's a similar, a similar issue that multilinguals or people interested in languages have. They're seen as kind of odd, bird, odd birds in the community, you know, it's kind of a bit, bit strange. And so it was to give them a sort of hope that actually there's more than just you there. It's, there's also me and there's other people as well. And it did bring people together in that way. So more people saw the video and wrote to me and, and I made friends off it as well. The third reason uh, was also I was I was always that person at a party or an event or at a meeting and they say, this is Richard and he's a polyglot and he does this and say something in a gazillion languages and I'd be like, uh, what do you want me to say? And most, the most normal thing that would come out of my mouth was I could say anything I like, but you don't understand what I'm saying anyway, so uh, what's the point? And <laughs> that's all I'd kind of say because... And they go, oh, wow, it sounds amazing. And I'm like, yeah. And it got a, it, I don't mind being the performing seal every now and again. It's, it's fine. I get that it's different and I get that it's interesting. But also I thought for those people that have that desire to just sort of, to be able to sort of point at me and say, listen to him do that. It gives them an outlet to do that. And that's a, it, it's, it's, an, it's an outlet that I understand and it's an outlet that I get. Um, just being the person doing it, every single time live and, and they can't record you and they can't take you to show their mum or the dad or the brother or the sister or their uncle or, or their friend back home. Now they've got these videos that they can show people and they can share them. And this is kind of what the internet did. And this is what we see now with TikTok, with everything else, more and more people are finding their voices and, um, and, and they, they can be shown to other people, downloaded, shared, all this kind of stuff. And this was kind of the start of that with YouTube. And they're the three main reasons why I did it in the beginning. Um, and, and all three reasons actually worked out really, really well for me because I made some super, super duper friends 
including you, Benny, and and Shannon. We, I know you through this community too. So I mean, fantastic. <laughs> and then the other the other reason of of you know making it feel normal. Every time I go to an event now, I get people come up to me and they say, "Do you know what? I went to school." Um, when you set your when you put your video out, I was the only one that liked languages, and they confirmed this this thought that I had, saying, "But because of you, I didn't, I wasn't embarrassed. I carried on, and I felt in, motivated and enthusiastic about languages. And now I'm doing my master's degree or or my PhD." And I was like, "That's so so humbling to hear a story like that when you put this video out, and you don't know if anybody's going to listen to it. It could go out, and it's like." You're playing it to crickets, right? You just don't know. But my hope was that if you have ears, you will hear. So if you want to listen to it, you know, you you will. And and then the the, the third reason of, of this sort of showing people, people were doing that too. And and that's always great because it means that people write to you and say, Oh, I didn't realize you did this, I didn't realize you did that. That's amazing. So all for all in all three areas, I think it it, it did its job. And um and the second question was about the Polyglot Conference. <laughs> so I know it took a bit of time over that, but I hope they have the The second bit about the Polyglot Conference was basically with this happening on YouTube, some of us started meeting up in, in person. Um, so Luca and I were the first to do this. Luca flew over to my house. I was living in Chester in the UK at the time. And he came and spent a week with me in my house in Chester. And... Um, we just got on really, really well, and we just carried on meeting up. And then we met up with with more people. Uh, Susanna Zarajski came to Poland, and we met up in Poland. And we met up. In, I, I met with some people who'd seen me online, like I was walking down the street, and Michał Grzeszkowiak uh, just saw me in Poznan and went, "I know you!" And he came up to me and he was, "You're the guy from YouTube. You're the guy that speaks the languages." And I was like, "Yeah, that's kind of me." And, and we became really good friends from that chance meeting on a street in Poznan. And we, we, we've, we've remained friends ever since. And these people, we all started getting together and we were talking and meeting up deliberately. And Luca and I were just talking in Poznan and just said, it's so, it's so good to get together. And we never get to have this time kind of together time and break bread with people who are so enthusiastic about languages and love languages. And we just said, wouldn't it be cool to do this? And um, we we just thought, yeah, let's let's go for it. And and so I I started working in the beginning. Luca and I were working on it together, and we were sort of thinking about it and brainstorming some ideas. And then um, it sort of got it, it got to the point where I needed to sort of really focus on on some of the detail. And Luca had other things going on, and I was like, do you want me to move it forward? Like, what do you think? And he went, yeah, go for it. And and I, I'd had experience putting together conferences when I worked at the foreign office in the UK. So I kind of had that background in conference organizing. And I was just like, I'm going to just go for this. And Luca came and I said, you can be my pretty face and <laughs> the conference and, uh, and, and, and just be there and, and just charm everyone. And he did. And he was wonderful. And, um, and we got um, loads of people on stage. We brought people from all over the world, 140 people. And you were one of them. Benny came from all over the world, from this forum, from this community that had just formed. And we were in Budapest and it was a magical weekend. And it's, it's since blossomed from there to uh, inspire other uh, conferences and itself has grown. And um, like, it's obviously, it's a pity we didn't get to have it this year, but 
I'm sure it'll continue many, many years moving forward as a, as an opportunity for people passionate about languages to, to get together, especially because like the, that idea that you have to be a polyglot, like that, that's the one thing in, in any time it comes up in a conversation that people are always like, no, 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 you, you don't have to be a polyglot, no? No, exactly. Absolutely. And I mean, the only reason it was called the Polyglot Conference is it was born out of that community that labelled itself the Polyglot Community. And the only thing polyglot about it now is actually the other use of the word polyglot, which means anything that is in multiple languages. So there are multiple languages talked about, discussed and used, but not necessarily by every single individual that goes there. And anyone, as you say, with one language, with 30 languages, however many languages, you've all got something to say, you've all got something to add. And if you bring yourself and a smile, you're always welcome. And like you say, this year we didn't have it in person, but we did get a great turnout online. And we had the Polyglot Conference Global. I had a completely different idea of how to run it. It was planets that you clicked on and it opened a Zoom room and you you went in and you, you, you got to talk. And there was a program of when you could practice certain languages and you could go to a certain planet to practice one language or another language. And it was it was super cool. And it's still open now. And there are people from the conference still going in and meeting every single day. I get notifications on my phone. Zoom meeting thing has been activated. This Zoom meeting has been activated. So we, I left purposely two rooms open so that people could continue to meet. While it's such a difficult time with not being able to move and get about and to meet up with people, I think now more than ever, it's really important that we have this community. And um, that was very, very important to me. And like you say, I hope next year, uh, we will get to go to Cholula, which was planned, obviously, originally for this year. And uh, we'd love to see you and Shannon there. And any of your listeners would be more than welcome to join us. I think that one of the things that makes the Polyglot community so powerful is that it's just a wonderful community and everyone is so supportive. And um, it's just been really great to be a part of it and to get to know people like you and Benny. But one of the things about being a polyglot is the community is kind of the face of it. So you go and you get to use your languages with other people and get to know other people that are a part of the community. But a lot of the work actually happens behind the scenes on your own. So would you let us know a little bit about what your processes after learning as many languages as you have? I'm sure you have, uh, or maybe you don't even have a system. You just kind of you know, wing it each time you pick up a new language, but what does your language learning look like and what sort of resources do you use? What sort of methods do you use? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's a good question, particularly at the moment, because um, my daughter had this idea of learning uh, a new language with me. And she said, dad, would you, she were in the car, she said, dad, will you um, learn a new language with me? And I said, okay, what is it? And she goes, well, I'm not quite sure, but there's this thing that I love on YouTube, this channel, and it's with interior design. She's interested in interior design and uh, designing houses and architecture generally. And um, I said, okay, uh, let me have a look and see what it is. And I looked at it and it was Korean. And my heart kind of sank a little bit because I'd never studied it. <laughs> of all the languages she could have picked, it could have at least been one that I had a bit of a background in. But it turns out, no, she picked one that I had no idea of at all. I mean, I know, I know two words in Korean at the moment. I know, which is hello. And I know, and I know, which is thank you. And they're the only words I know in Korean. Uh, and now I've I've recently learned the word koguma, which means sweet potato. But that's all I know in Korean. <laughs> and so 
my beginning phases, actually, I'm going through this process right now on my Speaking Fluently uh, blog, where I'm going to document the whole process that we go through for this year. And I'm going to go through an update very regularly. So it will be a blog post every two weeks uh, with a video and uh, on YouTube, on the YouTube channel. And then I will also do uh, some Instagram questions and stuff around it and tweets and things like that, obviously. But then I may go into, I'm still sort of eyeing up TikTok. I may start doing some TikTok updates on, on my Korean progress just to get feedback and um, and to see what people think of, of this and if people join me. So at the moment, I know you've already made the, the sort of the leap into TikTok, Betty, and I'm following you from the Polyglot Conference channel, but I'm sort of watching from the sidelines at the moment. But yeah, in terms of what I'm doing, so a, a book like uh, Udit Meyer's um, script hacking, for example. Um, I've, I've got this already. As any good polyglot, I've got a ridiculous library of languages that I've never studied. And um, just because they're language books and it's, it's like a magpie spotting exactly, like same as everyone, right? And and, and it's, it's, it's just a normal thing. I've got this. I've also got the Asim Neil book and I've also got the um, Teach Yourself Complete Korean as well. So I've got all of those. I've also got the Michel Thomas method for Korean. So I set myself goals. I'm going to start learning Korean properly in the new year because it's going to be a year-long project for 2021. And my plan is this. Before the new year starts, I'm going to go through this book. I'm going to go through, uh, there's a Billy Go or Go Billy. I always get it wrong the wrong way around. He's got some great videos on YouTube. And if you put Go Billy Korean or Billy Go Korean into YouTube, you'll find all of those videos. There's that. There's Talk to Me in Korean as well. So these are the two websites that I've, I've picked out that are pretty, pretty useful for me. Um, so I'm going to use these to start. I'm going to use the Billy Go things with the Korean script as well. I'm going to practice all of this, learn that, and I'm going to go through the Michel Thomas course and show my progress before I start to show you what I can do. I'm also going to be going through the process of picking a teacher on italki. So, um, and then I will be showing people all of this process and sort of cataloging it and going through it so that everyone can sort of see what I do with a new language, uh, particularly Korean. But you are right to a degree, actually, Shannon. It's, it's not a one a one size fits all for me with language learning, because what I do for Korean and what I would do with Ukrainian, for example, where I to study Ukrainian, would be quite different. Because Ukrainian, I, I already can read the script uh, pretty fluently. I already have a, a background in Russian and other Slavic languages that are in the same. So Russian's obviously in the in the same subgroup of the Slavic languages as Ukrainian. I also speak other languages that are related to from the West Slavic group that I've studied, uh, like Slovak and Czech. And so I can kind of understand that language. Were I to study that, there would be a very different way of going about it. The good thing about me taking on Korean is that this, I think, is going to be a method and a way of doing it that will work for anybody new to learning languages. The, the, you know, the idea of how I divide my time, what I do for my lessons, what I do for revising, the goals that I set, because hopefully they will be transferable to anybody learning language. So two weeks to learn the script and to do the Michel Thomas method, of course. They are my goals for the next two weeks until the end of this year. And then we start the fun of learning Korean and getting into all of those 
grammatical points and the <laughs> and and the honorifics and all of that sort of nonsense that you have to sort of get into with these languages that look so so different. And uh, can you give us a bit of a, a, a teaser? I'm sure you'll. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your blog post as you update this. But uh, how do you decide? Because um, to pick your correct uh, italki teacher, you said you just happen to have somebody with Indonesian who you, you got along with very well. But obviously, that's that's just luck of the draw. So, like with Korean, this this is a big, serious, year long project. You'll want to make sure you have the right teacher. So, how do you decide? How are you likely to decide which teacher you're you're sticking with or prioritizing? Well, the very first thing I think that's important to do when you're learning it, especially because I'm learning, I'm learning this from my daughter. She's 13. So the very first thing is for her to check through and give me a list of people she thinks would, would be a good fit for what she wants as well and, um, and what I want. So she needs to have input into this process. Um, but absolutely what you say, I think trial lessons, trying people out, um, you know, just having these introductory um trying people. I mean, you don't need to stick to one teacher either. You can maybe have two. One, one for example, for uh, if you get one that's very structured with the lessons and they know how they're going to move forward in a very nice way. And then you have another one who's more conversational, just wants to chit chat and you can just read over the, the dialogues that you've been going through and practice them. Because that that's one thing that I, I noticed that people don't do very often. Um, but it's super, super good to do. And that's what I did with Norwegian when I did it. My teacher for Norwegian wanted me to go straight into radio programs and listening to TV because I could understand it, right? So I could follow news in Norwegian. I could read the newspaper. That wasn't a problem. But could I find my way around a kitchen in Norwegian? Probably not. So it was really good to go through the, the, the sort of the very basic vocabulary and read through the dialogues. And then what I do is I transpose that knowledge onto my own life and, and add in a few words that were relevant to me or change things around. And that's the thing that's the most important in any language journey is making the language fit you, your life, your circumstances, making it relevant because they're the things that you're going to need to say and the things that you're most likely to say. So a teacher who will do that and practice that with me, for me, is a really core cool thing. And I want to be able to do that and someone who's going to be able to pick apart the grammar as well. Because sometimes I will, I mean, just as somebody who's, who's studied so many languages, I will have very specific grammatical questions that I will ask as well. I mean, that's not for everybody. If you're not into grammar, it doesn't mean that you're going to do better or worse than me because I ask those questions. It's just because my brain is used to, because I studied them in university, I guess I'm used to just uh, unpicking the grammar and, and, and finding out, okay, what, what's the sort of, what's the skeleton behind this beast and how does it stand up? And, and what are the things that can't be moved and what are the parts that can be moved? So, so those kinds of things I, I, I find quite useful to know. And I think you get an instinctive knowledge of that if you haven't done all that and grammar scares you. Whenever you get into a language, all you need to think about really is what are the words I need to say? In which order do I need to say them to say what I want to um, convey? What do I want to communicate and how do I, how do I use the grammar to communicate it and the vocabulary? And, and really, once you get those patterns in your head, that's all the grammar is. It's just patterns of how the, grammar, how the language works. So anybody who's listening to me saying, oh, wow, he's, he's doing all this and that doesn't apply to me. Uh, absolutely not at all. It's literally learning the, the patterns. And all I'm doing is 
a, a slight shortcut of that by asking what those patterns are in advance. It doesn't mean I learn it more quickly. All it means is I know what to look out for. And you will get an inch, intuitively, you pick that up, I think, as any learner does in over time. So you're learning Korean with your daughter, but this isn't the first kind of, I guess, language experience you've had with her. Um, you also shared several language with, languages with her over the years. So what are some of the things that you've seen have worked in sharing languages with your children? Um, so my daughter is now, as I say, 13. Um, from day one when she was born, my wife and I have only ever spoken Macedonian. So my home language is Macedonian. And we've never spoken English um, as, a, as, a, as a couple. And so when, when our daughter was born, it was really important that we definitely did that, even though she was born in the UK and we lived in the UK for the first three years of her life. It was particularly important that we, we, we were very strong in our Macedonian because it's, it's a small language in, in the global sort of stage. And particularly in the UK, you don't hear Macedonian spoken very often. Um, so it was really important that we kept that. And her Macedonian's result was strong. Um, but I also wanted, obviously, to speak to her in English because English is my mother tongue and it's the language I spoke growing up. Um, and I also wanted to speak to her in French because I just knew that it's one of those languages that when you get to it a little bit older, the pronunciation can be a little bit inhibiting and it's actually not that bad of a language to learn. It's just that when you hear that pronunciation, sometimes it throws you. and and I, I wanted to just give her that so she didn't have to work for it. And so I spoke to her in English and French from birth until she was 18 months old. And then when she was 18 months old, I stopped speaking English completely and only spoke French to her and then Macedonian as a family. Um, but when she was 16 months old, um, we'd already realized that she could, she could already speak the first three languages and she was saying her first few words by about a year old. She could make three word sentences by the time she was 16 months old and and she was doing that in the three languages and we were like wow well that's pretty cool maybe she can handle more and we'd done some research on bilingualism raising bilingual multilingual children and uh, we one of the pieces of research that we looked at was that actually you can you can just speak for an hour a day to a child and have interaction and they will learn the language and with a toddler, that's super easy. With a baby to a toddler, that's super easy because all you need to do is play. And they're not going to reject it very easily because they, they, don't, they can't vocalize that at that point. So we were trying to decide between German and Spanish and we couldn't. So we just said, oh, we'll try both and we'll see how she gets on with it and if she has a preference. So I started going out with her to different places um, for an hour a day to, put, to play in German and to play in Spanish. And we played in those languages. And after two months, she started preferring words from German and Spanish um, in with the other languages that she spoke, which was really interesting. Like she preferred the word for flower in German. So she'd say boomer. And it was, it really struck us that, oh, these languages are actually becoming part of who she is. And as she grew, I mean, there have been, I could talk about this for, for hours and hours. This would be maybe a series of podcasts or an entire book. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, to, to, to sort of not go into too much depth, but to give you them an idea, as um, her, her life has developed and she started school, there have been adaptations that we've needed to make uh, so that she's got her schooling in. I'm very much of the opinion that um, I didn't want her to be 
this 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 robotic child that had to learn all of the languages perfectly, that had to write them all perfectly, that had to do all of the subjects in all of them perfectly, and know every single word in every single language is at the same level. I just don't believe in that philosophy at all. In fact, if a child shows an interest, definitely feed that interest. But as a, a bog standard for me, um, first of all, I thought it was a bit unfair to, for me to do that and to make that decision for her. Whereas I was giving her a gift of understanding five languages, right? Or four languages from my side and then Macedonian from my wife's side. Um, and I thought that's already enough. And if she gets how those languages work, work intuitively in her brain from a young age, that's not going to go away. Uh, she may be more or less fluent or more or less able to manage vocabulary over time, but the grammatical structures they are imprinted already and she's got them and the pronunciation is also a lot easier as well and as she's got older uh, we've been through stages where I, uh, she went to a French school so I switched to English at home so that it balanced out and then uh, she she went back to an English speaking school and we went, we went back to French at home um, and with the Spanish and German again playing watching cartoons doing playing games having hours where we go out as she's got older though she has got um, more sort of demanding tasks for science, for history, for, and I can't make her do that in all the languages. That'd be crazy. I didn't do it, so why could I expect that? Of her? And I wanted them to be fun. So we used to do cooking in different languages. We used to go to the zoo in different languages. We did fun things like just fam regular family things, but in different languages. And that's kind of been my philosophy throughout. And and yeah, it's. It, it, She's now shown an interest in doing Korean and um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But there's zero pressure if she decides after a few months she doesn't want to do it or she's got other things she wants to focus on. That's fine, too. She plays the piano and she likes the piano. Um, she, she's interested in architecture. She liked coding for a while and she's probably going to go back to that. She did a coding course. So we, we kind of like to encourage her to, f to find her own um, interests because uh, the last thing we need is another me on, on the links, right? <laughs> it's really great that she's inspired you to learn Korean from her just sharing that she liked this video. But um, what do you think is, do you think that is going to be enough to motivate you throughout this next year? Because like, do you have final end goals? Do you plan to visit Korea or maybe like explore Korean culture from home? Like what, what's your long game with Korean essentially? Yeah, that's, that, that is and was for me a big question. Um, and, and I always say to people, choosing something on a whim is never the best. If you want long-term objectives and long-term, you know, endure, endure, sort of an enduring study program, just, just studying a language on a whim is not going to work. It's like wanting a, D, a PhD because you want to be called doctor. It's, <laughs> it's not the motivation to get you through a PhD program and all that research because you're soon going to get bored of the idea of becoming a doctor when you see what goes into a PhD. Um, and the same thing's true for taking a language like Korean. So one of my first things that I did was, um, and I actually just wrote about this this week on the blog, um, I asked people, friends of mine, uh, who have studied Korean and people just generally on my Facebook page privately. Um, I just put out anybody. I just found this one. It was actually through TikTok, strangely enough. I, was, I heard this Korean song on TikTok, really liked it, put it on my Facebook page and said, this is my new Korean song that I really like. Has anybody got anything else? 
and straight away the the list of all of these things to go and watch um music uh series uh websites you name it i got it, I, it just all of this sort of stuff flooded in i was like wow there is a serious amount of stuff and then doing the research now because i've i always think it's important to sort of find the materials you're going to use and you need to have some structure in your materials and doing that i've seen that there's some really good stuff for korean um the the the, the billy go the talk to me in korean um these are really really cool videos are full courses you can follow in korean and yes the goal at the end and i've promised my daughter if she sticks with it first of all i'm going to pay for her to do the talk to me in korean the entire year and she gets a certificate at the end of each level so i'll pay for her to do that so that's good for her for a schooling i think anyway if she does it also gives her some extra motivation the second thing i said to her is that if she finishes it and we get to the end of the year we will go to korea and uh, and we will we will go so i mean i'll probably just do that anyway but don't tell her <laughs> hopefully she won't listen to your podcast and say that i'm just bluffing but this is this is good parenting listen to this guys <laughs> so i i basically yeah i mean I've, i've just completely bluffed and said yeah well i'll take you to korea and and i really do want to take um her and i want to take um my wife as well she she endures all of my language ridiculousness um and has done for so many years so i i feel it's only fair and and also there's a kind of a selfish need as well i've always fancied going to the that zone in between the two careers i've seen it on tv so many times and i always fancied and when i was there for three days i was planning to go and it was closed and I was so <laughs> so dejected and so i really want to go and see that and i want to see many of the things in korea that um Yeah. So, so yes, there is definitely a desire to do it, and there are so many cool people like Lindy Bortus and um, and and Christine, of course, uh, who speak Korean, who are in our community and uh, have done really, really well with it. And and yeah, there are a number of Korean speakers and aficionados. I'm sure I'm going to continue to get a lot of uh, great support. And already on social media, since I launched this. people said yeah and I'll support you and yeah and I'll reach out to you and yeah I'm going to follow along and I'm going to do this too and I'm going to do a different language and we've agreed that we're going to just keep you know sort of keep tabs on each other and I think that's really good that's kind of what a coach is you're like a fitness coach but like a language coach and I know people work as language coaches and it's kind of like a free language coach kind of thing I guess just yeah let's just keep each other motivated in on just sort of publicly as well you know and I think that's good and it fits in with the kind of thing you do with the, you know with with your challenges as well i think it's they work because communities work it's certainly great for accountability mm-hmm. absolutely so one of the questions that we like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast because it is the language hacking podcast is what is language hacking to you language hacking to me is using the knowledge that you've got to make the most out of the knowledge you want to acquire Trying to expand on that because you're looking at me as if to say, "What on earth are you talking about?" <laughs> yeah, you've 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 got me a bit speechless at, at how how concisely beautiful that definition is. So I definitely want to hear more. I feel like you planned that. You prepared, didn't you? <laughs> absolutely didn't. Absolutely didn't. Um, so what that means is is kind of it's taking the idea of the Michel Thomas method, really, and that's how that's how Michel Thomas devises method. But I think that. pretty much most polyglots work in this way anyway and most 
most successful language learners do this. It's understanding what you have in common with your new language that you want to acquire and leveraging the vocabulary and the grammatical structures that you already have. So as an example of of vocabulary from English, which is a very common, commonly spoken language, and many people out there will speak it. You know that if you learn any Romance language um, and you've got a T-I-O-N or an I-T-Y, the chances are there's a very similar word in those languages. Information, information, uh, information, whatever you want to call it, it's the same word. So you get all of these free words, right? And there are loads of them. You also get uh, if you go into the Germanic languages, some similar things as well, but also from the grammatic, from a grammatical point of view, when we think of like German verbs or Swedish verbs and all that, and we're thinking, oh, it's a minefield. Actually, there is. We just got to remind ourselves why English is called the Germanic language. Well, it has Germanic language features, and one of those is strong verbs. So, I swim, swam, swum. And that is something that you see, those patterns you see constantly in all of the Germanic languages. And it helps you remember, retain, and reproduce them very, very quickly. Um, and we talk about phrasal verbs in English, which as, as foreigners listening to this who have learned English as a second language will think phrasal verbs, <clears throat> okay. But as native English speakers, we don't often think of phrasal verbs at all because when we weren't taught about phrasal verbs necessarily at school, uh, we just know them to live by, to live uh, with, to live on, to live, uh, to, to go through, to, uh, to put down, to well, all these kind of things that go with different prepositions or different words with a verb and it changes the meaning. Uh, to put up, to put up with, to put down have very different meanings, but the verb is put, right? Um, the other Germanic languages often have similar kinds of things where they, they use um, and abnehmen in German um, for weight loss, for example. Um, there are many, many different things that you can find in terms of similarities between grammatically and also I find that when you do it, you actually enrich your own language, particularly English when you're learning. Um, so leveraging what you know helps you learn the other languages. But when you do it the other way around as well and use it back onto your English, you start understanding why our language works in a certain way. And for example, why are we the only Germanic language that says me too? And why is French the only language that says moi aussi? Instead of I too or je aussi, we don't say that in those languages because French and, French and English have that shared thing in common that's a bit weird. But all the other Romance languages will say I too, and the same as the Germanic languages will say I too. <laughs> so you learn these funny, quirky things. It's cool. Yeah, it, it definitely gives you a new perspective on things that, um, you know, different as all these languages are, you, you see this sense of familiarity that even the, the vastly different ones have some commonalities that are beyond just um, being in the same language family. So it's, it's definitely an interesting, fascinating journey. And in terms of like your own journey, obviously, um, we'll share in the show notes uh, for people uh, links to your blog so they can check out your Korean project. But as a final question, I'm, I'm very curious to, to see like, what, what are you thinking very long-term, like five or 10 years? Because you're just learning like all the languages. You, you've got such a, a wider range of them. 
Like, you know, are you becoming an evil supervillain to take over the world? Like, what's your end goal here? <laughs> I, you, you got me. You got me, Benny. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, to take over the world, you know, sort of. After <laughs> <laughs> um, evil style. Yeah, definitely. So, no, what, what I would like to do is I like to delve into new languages. I like, um, I definitely see championing um vulnerable endangered and indigenous languages is something i want to continue doing that's a common theme of the polyglot conference year on year and I, it's something i believe in it's something i want to invest time and uh resources into uh, doing as well um but then in terms of my own goals too i mean five years time my daughter will be 18 she'll go off to university and um and, and, and it will be a different phase in our existence because we won't be at home, we won't be doing school runs, we won't be um, doing all these things in the same way. So very much I see that phase as being doing sort of some more in-country type things, um, taking on languages. I imagine also Far Eastern languages um, because I have family in Thailand and um, I've got connections to the Far East. Uh, so... They're languages that I've not had much chance or call to use um, in, in my life so far, simply because my job's been busy with lots of European languages mainly. Um, but the languages I've delved into and I'd like to, um, to take them forward. But I also see it as you know, more and more projects like that, just exploring, not worrying if I forget a language in the future. If I forget something or it gets so rusty, it's, it's almost not even recognizable as a language that I've I studied. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna uh, lose any sleep over it. Um, I've been through that process. I might finish uh, from a, a level where I could communicate to a basic level. It's at the moment very dormant, and um, I don't lose any sleep over that at all. Um, although I love the Finnish language, and my experience in Finland was fantastic. I expect. I expect that I'll get more of those experiences, but also, um, I may hit on a new language that becomes a new normal language for me to speak, um, like uh, Turkish or, or Albanian, you know, uh, or Serbian, uh, these languages that I've just fallen into, and uh, Bulgarian as well. I have a very, I'm very passionate about Bulgarian and Bulgaria. I love uh, Bulgaria. And, um, and these are all languages that I, because living in the Balkans, you, you're in contact with them and you, you build a relationship with, with the countries, the people and, um, and the languages themselves. So more of that in more places. More and more places. And you're going to be continuing to, to share your story with us online. And I will definitely enjoy following along with that. So people should definitely check out uh, his, his blog, his social media channels. And of course, the Polyglot Conference. Um, people are very welcome to that. You'll very likely find me there in me for many, many years to come, as well as Richard and Shannon and lots of other people who love to check these things out. So um, that's been a very interesting chat. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for having me. And uh, until the next one, we'll wish everybody a very happy language learning. So at the end of every episode, Benny and I like to share a takeaway from the discussion we had with our guest. And today for me, one of the things that Richard shared was this idea of using anchor languages, which is not something that I'd considered before. And especially as you start to learn a larger number of languages, these anchor languages could be really important for you in maintaining these groups of languages. And for me, I've always thought of languages 
on an individual level and not necessarily as a part of a family or having one language in a family being my anchor for that entire family. So that was something really interesting for me and definitely something that I'm going to think about in the future as I continue adding and even just moving around between my languages so that I'm not so stressed, like let's say with losing my Italian um, and I can actually think of my French as an anchor for the Italian language. So what about you, Benny? What was your takeaway? One thing that I really appreciated is uh, just hearing how Richard plans to document his upcoming Korean project and how he's uh, using it as a, like he said, a free language coaching session. And this is something that I did quite a lot when I first started my blog. And I have taken a big break of several years away from that. And I'm very much inspired by Richard to, uh, to try to get that back into my routine in uh, the next, in the upcoming year. So I'm hoping I'll definitely be following along in his blog and seeing how he's doing it and taking a leaf out of his book and trying to share my own language learning uh, documentation with the world because I've found it definitely helped with me for, to have that per, uh, public accountability. One of the things that inspired the challenge, but also I really like what Richard was saying that it's very good for um, for inspiring other people who just see how you're doing, even if they're not learning that same language. And uh, I really want to get back into doing that myself. And Richard has reminded me the, of the many benefits of that. So I'll definitely uh, be taking that into account in my upcoming year. I think that that's a really interesting takeaway, especially because community was such a big theme in our discussion with Richard and how reaching out, having conversations with the community really helps in accountability and then in also just getting help with the language. You might get recommendations or you might get tips or suggestions or even feedback that help you really make progress with your language. So I would say that if we were to kind of pick one big takeaway from this episode, something that listeners could take as an immediately actionable step, it would be to go ahead and document what you're doing in some way and then share it. The Fluent in Three Months um, community is a great place to do it. So you can go to the Facebook page and share what you're doing there. There'll be plenty of people who would love to see what you're doing and what your process is because we can all learn from one another in sharing the ways that we learn languages and what's working for us. So that would be it for this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, again, you can leave us a review at languagehacking.com slash review. And that's it. So until next time, happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.